You'll make your way to Exodus 33. An oft-repeated story recounts a cabinet meeting presided over by President Abraham Lincoln, gathered to discuss the weighty matter of civil war. A somber cabinet member suggested the meeting start with prayer and to make sure, as he put it in his words, that God is on our side. Lincoln is said to have responded, let's pray to assure that we are on God's side. That is where we must start, isn't it? We must always start there to assure that God is on our side. No, but that we are on His. That's where we must start. We're not to manipulate God onto our side. We are to align ourselves with Him. Do you remember Joshua 5, that great account? Joshua's reconnoitering Jericho and is alarmed to see there a warrior with drawn sword before him. Remember what he says. Are you for us or for our enemies? Friend or foe? And the answer comes back, no. It's not what Joshua asked, was it? Friend or foe? No. I am the commander of the army of the Lord. And Joshua falls on his face and says, Your wish, my Lord, is my command. Our first duty as human beings is always to get on God's side. I speak perhaps to someone here, to individuals in this assembly today. You have not come to a place where you have laid down your sin and received the salvation that comes in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is you today, then you need to get on God's side. You will go into eternity with your sin and must stand to give account of yourself before an absolutely perfect God whose law you have violated day after day after day. You must get on His side. And through His provision in Jesus Christ, there is access to forgiveness. For those of us who know Christ as Savior, we need to be on God's side to joyfully and obediently align our hearts and our daily lives with God's revealed Word. Let me propose to you this morning that once we have aligned ourselves on God's side, we have not finished the task. Once we have aligned ourselves on God's side, we should, with a growing passion, labor to assure that God is on our side. To assure that His presence and blessing are uniquely with us. Do not misunderstand me. For the true believer, the Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts. For the true believer, God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. God is with us and He will remain with us until we enter glory as His followers. However, it is possible for us to go about our Christian lives while the unique presence and distinct blessing of God largely misses us. On a corporate level, we can function as a Christian church while the unique presence and blessing of God operates at a distance. A church may experience financial prosperity, numerical success, global influence, community appreciation, orthodox teaching, never Noticing that God's unique presence and blessing are distant from her. And I think, Eden Baptist Church, that that prospect should terrify us. And it should drive us to our knees. In a very different setting, it is this very prospect that drove Moses to one of the most intense, provocative, and glorious seasons of prayer in salvation history. And we have the privilege to watch 
to listen in as he takes God on in prayer. The backdrop, of course, is Exodus chapter 32 and this horrible season of sin in Israel's life. Israel's spiritual impatience leads her to manufacture God's presence among her, to create this golden calf and to say, if God won't meet with us, if he won't send his leader Moses back to us, we'll make things happen ourselves. And they follow this way of the nations, this idolatrous means of creating immediately in the present the sense of God's presence. It's manufactured and it leads to a horrendous moral debauchery in the experience of the people. We read in chapter 32 toward the end of that chapter, 32 and verse 31, so Moses returned to the Lord as this chapter ends out, and says, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. That is, take my life with theirs. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. The just do not die for the unjust. Not yet. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins, their sin upon them. And indeed, God does. Verse 35, he sends a plague on the people because they had made the calf, the one that Aaron made. As we come into chapter 33, we find here that God threatens to distance himself from his people. Israel has not been on God's side. And now God proposes to distance himself from them. Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. In chapter 32, Moses intercedes for Israel and God mercifully turns away his wrath from the erring nation. So although the stench of Israel's rebellion against God still lingers in the air, God moves forward with his commitment to his people. It's time for Israel to pull up tent stakes at the foot of Mount Sinai and to set out for Canaan land. In verse 2, God continues, I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. This is all good news. It's wonderful news. But there might be some things going on in Moses' mind here, just saying, I'm not quite satisfied with this. There's something not quite right. Verse 1, he keeps saying, you brought them up. Why does God keep insisting that it's Moses' project to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, not his? As if they're not his people. In verse 2, he says, I will send an angel to lead you to Canaan. Now, God's angel has led the nation all along, so that's no problem. That's good news. And what this angel does, God does, I will send my angel and I will drive out these enemies. That's all good. But whatever happened to this promise to tabernacle among us? Where is that speech? to tabernacle among the people over the Ark of the Covenant. Any concern that Moses may be sensing is now confirmed in shocking news. Verse 3, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now let's think of this in light of the whole book of Exodus and what we've looked at. We've plowed ourselves through some pretty tough sections when we dealt with the tabernacle, haven't we? Chapters 25 through 31, there's a lot of detail there, a lot of thick instruction. I mean, this blueprint that is given, the fabric designs, and the, uh, some of the approach of the priest, not laid out very clearly in that section, but will be in Leviticus, but all of that's laying there. This blueprint and these fabric designs and now God's saying he's not going to tabernacle among them. Put chapters 25 through 31 on ice. 
And why is he not going to go with them? Why will he not tabernacle among them? Lest, verse 3, I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The answer is the golden calf incident. Should such an incident break out again while God is tabernacled among them, he fears that he will crush them all. He'll consume them in his hot wrath. And he does not want to do that. The point is not that if God stays a bit more distant, he's not going to know what's going on in the camp. God is omniscient. He knows all. Of course, that's not the case. The point is his distance will, it seems, cover them with common grace. There's a sense in which God's presence is in all the world at all times, and there's a covering of common grace. It does not mean he will not judge sin, but there's something of a distance here that will not force an immediate response were he to dwell among them. There is a sense in Scripture that the closer God is, the higher the standard is. Now that, of course, doesn't pass to say that someone who enters into eternity without Christ will just be forgiven. There is a final accounting for all, but within the living of our lives, there is, where there is a distance from God, there is a certain level of count, accountability. But when God is with us, that accountability level rises. Judgment starts first where? At the house of God. And so he says, I don't want to go, lest I consume them. Tragically, this means that the angel of God, think of it, the angel of God who throughout the book represents God's unique presence among the people, now morphs into a symbol of God's distance from them. I will send my angel among them. Israel's sin has created this rift between her and God. God will be with her. He will fight her battles. He will secure her success, but at a distance. Simply put, the tabernacle plan is unraveling. And Moses reports this tragic news to the people. Verse 4, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. This is a beautiful scene, really, in one sense. It's dripping with grace and hope, something like we might hear in Genesis. Adam, where are you? They strip off their ornaments. They are grieving at what God has said. In her spiritual impatience, Israel tried to manipulate God's presence and blessing in her midst. But now that she learns that he will not go with her, she mourns the separation from God that sin has spawned. The reason for this mourning and for the stripping off of jewelry is now explained in verse 5. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. That is, this became a pattern for them. The jewelry, of course, is a symbol of their deliverance from Egypt. Remember, the Egyptians give them this jewelry as they are delivered on that night. They'd use these symbols of their freedom to violate their covenant with God. And it's only fitting now that they remove them while he ponders what to do with them, and they remove them for good. This is good news. It's good news to see the repentant heart of the Israelites here, to know that tragedy has taken place. God's distance is not good, and we mourn. What God will do now in the text is held in suspense. It's just held there. No particular decision has been made at this point, but just this report. And now as that's held in suspense, verses 7 through 11, bear witness to the tragic results of the idolatrous golden calf incident. We have evidence now. Moses must meet with God outside the camp. This is evidence of what he has said. I will not go up with you. Verse 7, Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. This has led to a lot of confusion in understanding the biblical text. Because the tent of meaning has already been used as a reference to what? It's been a reference to the tabernacle that has been designed by God, though not yet constructed. So is this the same tent of meeting? I think not. I think it is a different tent of meeting. 
the tabernacle not being constructed. This is the tent of meeting. And the key to this tent is its location. You notice here that it says in verse 7 that it is far off from the camp. That's the key, its location. The tabernacle was designed to sit where? At the very center of the tribes of Israel. They were to surround it. It was to be its center. But now this tent is outside the camp. You have to take a walk to get to it. Alan Cole adds a cultural note here that's very enlightening. He says, and I quote, Sanctuaries were usually built a little distance away from towns in the ancient world. Probably in part because so much of what took place in those sanctuaries shouldn't be seen. But for whatever reason, they were often set outside the towns and people would go out to these pagan uh, places to corrupt themselves in worship. Cole continues, Israel has therefore lost her uniqueness as the nation among whom God dwells in their very midst. And the second part of verse 7 describes then how this tent will be used. It's a tent of shame in some respects, yet it is a tent where God meets. And everyone, verse 7b, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting which was outside the camp. That is, they would seek knowledge from God there through Moses' mediation. The indication is that Israel's reverence for God and for Moses has at least been restored. They can go out here to this tent. Moses will represent them to the Lord, and they can discern the Lord's will. Verse 8, whenever Moses went out, we have now just some background to how this looked. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. Sometime after Moses enters the tent, and after the people are going to go back to their daily responsibilities, apparently, and then verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. So apparently some time passes here that they've gone back to their duties, and they rise again when the cloud comes. So they rise when Moses passes out to the tent, and they rise again when the cloud comes and descends upon the tent. They worship at their doors. Again, this is good news. It shows Israel's interest in the presence of God and her reverence for worship here. A recovery from chapter 32. But it is also a tragedy, isn't it? A common tent outside the camp, not the tabernacle. Verse 11, Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, when Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So the point is, at this tent, Moses converses with God. He does not hear from God in visions or dreams or in a trance. He hears from God in straightforward conversation. I think that's the idea of face-to-face -face here when we put it together with the rest of Scripture. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 8 describes it as mouth-to-mouth. -mouth. The point being they're having an, a, a, a conversation. It's not dreams, it's not a vision. But Moses would, having talked with God, go back to the encampment, and Joshua would always then stay guard there. Joshua, not the Levites, but Joshua. There is a distance between God and his people. Now this is really a discouraging situation here in verses 7 through 11. On the continuum between God's common presence in the world and outright theophany of his appearing in some form, Moses is deeply disappointed with Israel's situation. He has prevailed with God in chapter 32 to spare the nation. Now Moses storms the throne of God and insists that God's unique presence and blessing go with him. He does not want to live with this. To be so separate from God We listen in on this amazing conversation. I think we could say probably, don't try this at home, if you know what I mean. This is intimate speech 
between Moses and God, but by His grace we can begin to try this at home. For here Moses secures the presence of God among his people. It is a glorious moment in salvation history. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. What's Moses saying? In light of this commission to lead Israel to Canaan, God, remember, you have chosen me, you have known me by name, I have found favor in your sight, and so I come before you, and we talk, and I have a matter to bring before you. What is that matter? Verse 13, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. What is Moses saying there? He's a, he is assuring that he is on God's side. He wants to know God's will. He wants to do God's will. Notice it there again in verse 13. That I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Show me your ways. I trust that's what's going on right here now among us, that we have come to hear the word of the Lord and we're saying, God, show me your ways. Show me the truth in your word. This is what Moses is saying. I want to be on your side, God. I'm willing to get myself there. Now, let me just quickly say at the end of verse 13, consider too that this nation is your people. Here, Moses begins to turn now and to say, God, I'm on your side. I want you to be on our side. Consider too this nation is your people. And the essence of this prayer that Moses will now pour out to God is that he contends with God for God to vindicate his own name and to stand up for his own glory. He's pleading with God to act as God should act to glorify his name. And it is in particular relationship with his people that Moses longs for him to glorify his name. And he prevails with God here. Verse 14, and he said, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. I think rest here we should probably understand as entrance into Canaan as opposed to just spiritual sense of relief or something like that. Though that certainly would uh, be part of the uh, package. But there is a, re a rest that comes as they enter Canaan. I will give you rest. I will take you there. And Moses seems to have prevailed with God, but God seems to be holding Moses off a little bit here yet. And this is where English hurts us. We don't have the... It, it, sometimes you want to go back to the these and the thous. Nobody understands how they work anymore. But these are singular yous. I will go with you, Moses. I will be with you. My presence will be with you. Moses. And Moses says, no, it's not enough. He continues to intercede for the stiff-necked nation, pleading that God would include her in his promise. Again, grounding his prayer in the glory of God. Notice it in verse 15. Think of how he argues with God here in the right sense of that word. And he said to him, verse 15, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? I know there's interpretation in my inflections. But I think that's part of what he's saying. I need you to go with me. Yes, but I need you to go with your people as well in just the same way. And why is that? What's his argument? What is his contention with God? God, if you do not go with us, we will not be a holy people. We will not be distinct. We will just be another nation a second-rate nation 
going about life like all the other nations go about life. There will be nothing unique in us. Our uniqueness is your presence. You must go with the people. Do you remember what Moses learned back in chapter 3? God says, bring the people out of Israel. Lead them from, out of Egypt rather. Lead, bring Israel out of Egypt. And what does Moses say? Who am I? And how does God respond? doesn't even answer him. It's not, it doesn't matter who you are. What does he say? I will be with you. Moses has learned the importance of the presence of God, and now he intercedes for the people and prays that God's presence would be with them as well. God, you must go with us. That's all that makes us unique. That's all that makes us bring glory to you in this world, is your presence with us. And in verse 17, again, he prevails. The Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. God's kind of rough here, isn't he? He doesn't quite give it to him. I'll go with the people. He doesn't use their name. He doesn't say, I'll bring up the people that I brought out of Egypt. But he just says, I'll do what you've said. I will concede the point. My presence will go with you. And let me say, there is great hope here. The hope that I gained from this text is that man can labor with God in prayer and prevail. I don't mean that we can get our way with God any old way that we choose. But what it does say to us is that we can go to God and prevail in prayer with Him. We should not permit our understanding of God's sovereignty, which we highly exalt in this assembly. We believe in a sovereign God whose purposes are always worked out in all things, but we must not let that orthodox doctrine explain away the nature of God that is revealed here. Scripture reveals here that God is a real, living Father, filled with passion. He's concerned not to lose His temper with the children that He loves. God's temper is never sinful, of course. A human, human father's temper usually is, I suppose. But our Heavenly Father is not only heavenly, He is a Father. He acts in the moment. He never loses sight of His all-encompassing plan. But He is not play-acting here. I'm going to put on an act and pretend to be talking to Moses about what I've already decided. There is a sense, again, which God knows all that's going to happen here. I don't believe that the future is open for him and he's negotiating here, not really sure what he's going to decide. No, but in the moment, in the intimacy between God and man, this is a real live discussion. God doesn't have a mask on his face here. There is a genuine concern that he not consume his people. Like, think of it, like a father who had decreed in his mind to restore a child's privilege, yet gets passionately into a discussion about whether or not he should do so. I've done that. You've done something like that, certainly. You've decided what you're going to do, but you enter into this discussion, kind of weighing it and thinking through it and reasoning it through and bringing it to resolution as you bring the other person along with you. It's not play acting. It's real life. And this is our God. Eden Baptist Church, we have a danger here because we do exalt the sovereignty of God. The danger for us is just to check out. Say that God knows all things. He has designed all things to work according to His will. That is a precious biblical truth, a confidence that we can have in God. But it is wrong to take that idea and to say, therefore, that we check out. And stand back and watch what God does. And all we ever do is simply submit to what He has decided. That's our lot. I think rather we contend with him in prayer. Abraham, Genesis 18. What if there's ten righteous people? Will you, the judge of all the earth, do wrong by taking out the righteous with the wicked? 
We contend with God, as Moses does here. God, if your presence doesn't go with us, what happens to your reputation? We contend with God, if it is possible. Remove this cup from me. He is a real father. There is a real conversation that we can have. Negotiating for the glory of God is the intention of our, should be the intention of our prayers. Defying the status quo in light of God's promises. And the evidence that God has heard Moses' prayers is now indicated. We have seen evidence of the separation of verses 1 through 6 and verses 7 through 11. And now we see evidence of Moses securing God's presence in 12 through 17 in verses 18 and following. We'll go through these very, fairly quickly. Follow with me. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. I don't think that's a request for a fireworks show. It's a request for a confirming word that Moses has indeed found favor in God's sight and that God will fulfill his promise to go with Israel. Listen, think of it this way. If God's presence will go with them, if that's what he has indeed promised, then Moses is saying, let's get started. I want to see your glory right now. Right here. On the continuum of God's presence between common grace and theophany, this is a request for theophany. That is, he wants to see the objectified presence of God. Verse 19, And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So rich. The goodness of the Lord will pass before you. God's moral nature, His attributes epitomized here by His goodness. It's all that God is will pass before Moses. And what's God saying here? I'm a gracious God. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. What's that have to do with showing anything to Moses? That's his goodness. And it's the only reason that God's promise is going to be fulfilled with Israel. The Apostle Paul takes up this very line in Romans chapter 9 and verse 15. God is a sovereign God who will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. But what God is saying here in context, in part, is I have chosen to have mercy on Israel. I, go, I will go up before you and I will show you my presence, which will continue with you. What beautiful words of hope to Moses. But notice here in verse 19, this will be a sermon all in itself, but notice Moses wants to see God. What does God say? I will make all my goodness pass before you. There, there is the vision. But then he says, and will proclaim before you my name. The vision is not enough. Along with the vision of God's glory, Moses must consider objective truth about God. What God looks like is never the grand agenda. It is the revealed word about who God is that is all important. Verse 20, but he said, qualifier, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. A human being cannot fully comprehend the glory of God. Should we gaze into the face of God fully, we would be consumed. A strange thing, isn't it? We long to see our Savior's face. We long to see the face of God and yet knowing all the time that in our sin it would consume us. But Moses will take whatever he can get. He longs to see God's glory in all of its fullness, in all of the fullness that he can take. And so God obliges that longing in verse 21. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And God is obviously accommodating Moses here with this objectified presence, this theophany, this visual representation of God. He places Moses in a cave or some split in the rock and shields him from his glory. 
That would apparently kill him should he see it, and Moses sees then the trailing edge of the glory of God's being as he passes by. This is as close as we can get. We could trace all of the picture, the visions of God in the Scripture, and you see most of them are looking at what? Most of them are looking over God's head or at his footstool. They don't look at his face. Moses cannot look at the face of God and live, but he gets about as close as you can get. He sees the trailing edge of the glory of God, and God reveals that he is indeed there. Does it make you hungry? Does it make you thirsty for the presence of God? What glory it would be for us to see the trailing edge of the presence of God and know that it was God. Well, this may not be the way that God chooses to reveal himself in these days, but there is a God who is there. God is there. And it should be our longing to desire to experience that presence. And what is our first duty then? In all of this, our first duty, and as we consider this text of Scripture together today, is to get on God's side. And I ask you, humbly, but passionately, are you there? Are you on God's side? Have you come to understand that you live as a lawbreaker? That you violate the will of God? That God's judgment rests upon you? Because of your sin, have you come to understand that Jesus Christ paid the penalty of that sin by dying in the place of the sinner, bearing the wrath of God, and rising from the dead in victory over death and sin? Have you come to place your personal faith in that message? You've got to get on God's side. If you know the Lord as Savior, let's remember verse 13. It should be our passion that God would show us His ways. That we would know Him in order to find favor in His sight. Does that epitomize your life? The unbelievers around who know you, the Christians who know you best in your life, do they see you as one who is longing to know the ways of God? Who longs to get on God's side? But hear me again. It is our high calling as those who have gotten onto God's side to then begin to labor to get God on our side. We've got to be very cautious how we say that and how we apply this, I realize. But I ask us as a church, as an assembly, does Eden Baptist Church possess a holy and courageous zeal for God to travel among us? He is with us, to be sure. But a church may experience financial prosperity and numerical success and global influence and community appreciation and orthodox teaching and be well-administrated and never notice that God's unique presence and blessing are distant from her. There can be a lot of excitement, there can be a lot of motion, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of activity. We can go about our Christian life knowing how to get to heaven and leading other people there and never notice that God is distant from us, that His presence is not evident with us. And we live in a day where there's so many substitutes for His presence. There's so many schemes and ways to make it seem like God's with His people. This isn't something you throw in the fire and carve out. This isn't something you manufacture as a people by a certain way of doing business as a church. The presence of God is a gift of God. And if anything, it is a result of earnest prayer in seeking His face. The true success of a church, may we stake this claim, the true success of a church is the genuine presence and blessing of God among us. The sense that he is traveling intimately with us. In fact, such intimate travel with a people of God often does not make them very approachable on the part of many who are walking in sin. I'm not troubled by this. 
I hope that as a church we can always be as welcoming and accommodating as is right and appropriate. But you remember the early church? Acts chapter 5 and verse 13. What was the response there to that early church? They were deeply respected for the presence of God among them. And the result was many people wanted nothing to do with them. They were afraid of the presence of God. And truth of the matter is, so are many Christians today. Walking in the presence of a holy God means that things need to get cleaned up. It means that I've got to do business with God. It means that there's a higher standard. It might mean some unpopular views. But do we really want that, His presence? Or maybe we're comfortable leaving a gap between us and God. I understand this. I understand this from a personal standpoint in ways I wish I didn't in some respects. But in my own personal journey, there was a time in my life where I foolishly thought that the best strategy for joy was to allow a little gap between me and God. Not a big, massive one, but a comfortable one. And in that comfortable gap, there was a way of benefiting from the people of God and the purposes of God and the benefits and blessings of being a believer. And there was also a little bit of take from the world. The great discovery, one of them in my life, was that that was insanity. I am so grateful to the merciful God who said to me, Close the gap. You are doing nothing but siphoning off joy. In my presence is fullness of joy. And at my right hand are treasures forevermore. Close the gap. What is it that keeps us separated from the unique presence and blessing of God? It is our sin. It is our desire to reach into the world for its ways and its ideas, thinking that somehow we can supplement the joy that God brings us in our life. That is insanity. And may we see a worshiping Israel standing at her tent's doors as the glory of God descends. And may we stand with them. For I think this is step number one in it all, is repentance. What we learn from Israel's example here is that we must come to God and see that sin is our problem. It separates us from the presence of God in some respect. Whether we need to come to saving faith or we need to grow as a believer, we need to let aside a sin that is dragging us down. That need is repentance. We must come and turn from our sin. And secondly then, I think we must learn here that we must come in longing prayer that, has a, that brings with it a holy discontent with the status quo. I'm not happy with where I am. I'm not happy with the presence of God in our church. I mean, you know what I mean by happy. We're pleased with what's there. But we're not fully satisfied. There's a longing in our heart, having repented of sin and having gotten on God's side. There's a longing in our heart for Him to get on our side. For His presence to be with us, for His unique blessing to visit us. This is among a handful of other key reasons why we have an all-night prayer meeting Friday night and Saturday of this, these past few days. This is why that we might come together at the head of the year and beg with God for His presence among us, for His unique blessing in our assembly. We labor in vain apart from that. It should not matter to us how we externally prosper. It should matter to us that God is traveling with us. And I can report from that meeting that these were prayers that were offered repeatedly, pleading with God for His presence with us. May He answer that prayer. But the problem always remains sin, doesn't it? Some of you may well be checking out right now. 
because the allure of sin is too great to really deal with this. Some of you may be checking out because you say, as hard as I've tried, the sin just continues to prevail. We need to take great hope here. If you're Israel, who's your hero? I mean, you, you want to just give very heartfelt thanks to Moses, don't you? This man who represents you before God and pleads and contends with God in prayer in your behalf. There's good news as we apply that concept in our own assembly. There are people who pour out their prayers in behalf of you. In two hours on Friday and Saturday night, we poured over every name of everyone who attends our church with regularity, and we prayed for you. And that kind of prayer is just at the head of the year and needs to be prayed and is prayed every Wednesday night as we gather in this assembly and we pray for you by name. And as we take sheets home and are praying by name for you every day, the prayer is that God would uniquely preside with you. That He would uniquely bless you. That His presence would be in your life. These kinds of prayers are pouring out in this assembly all the time. Join us. Still not encouraged? I wouldn't be if that's all it was. It was just our weak and insufficient prayers if that's all it was. My great courage is we've got another intercessor. When I look at Moses, I see this guy won't quit. He's just constantly interceding for the people. I mean, he goes back to them and he really gives them hassle, doesn't he? He breaks up the calf and makes him drink it and breaks the covenant and gets all angry at him and lets him have it and then goes back to God and pleads for those same people, begging God to be with them and to uniquely bless them. Over and over and over interceding for the people. You know where I'm going. We have such a superior high priest. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says that our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, intercedes incessantly for you. Praise God. He pleads with us. We have no other standing. We have no other, no other hope beside that. But here is one who has the ear of God, if I can say it that way. And we have the assurance of his word that he intercedes incessantly in our behalf. This one who has laid down his own blood on the mercy seat, who represents us before God with his atoning grace, this one pleads for his people. If you have joined God's side, he's praying for you. He's praying for you all the time. He's praying for us that we would set sin aside, that the Father would deal with us mercifully, and that His presence would walk with us. Imagine the efficacy of the prayers of Jesus Christ for us. May we join those fervent prayers, laboring to get God on our side in this coming year. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we stand on holy ground. And I pray that on this holy ground, the allure of this world would dissipate, would not pull us away. I pray, God, that we would sense in this moment the rightness and the truth of the fact that you are our all-satisfying joy, that at your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. There is fullness of joy in your presence. And God, as we have prayed through this Friday night and Saturday morning, we, as we have prayed earlier today, and as we pray now, we plead with you to meet with us. We plead with you, Father, to travel with us. We plead that your blessing would rest upon our assembly and our individual lives as believers, our families and 
all that you give us. Father God, we need your blessing. We are not asking for ease of circumstance. We are not asking that you somehow shield us from all suffering and trial. We're not asking for success externally. We're not asking for fame. We're asking, dear God, that you would go with us. That your presence would be here. That your blessing would be here. Whatever anyone else sees or thinks, dear God, May we see your hand move among us in this coming year. We don't want to go forward if you don't go with us. And I plead, Father, as a church that holds high your word, that longs to follow what it says, to be a, a church of prayer, a church of worship, a church of giving, a church of edification, a church that honors the word of God. Though I'm sure we make many interpretive errors. Father, it is our desire to take your word at face value and to honor it. God, we then pray not to reward us, for our sin would bring us down if it was a matter of reward. But we pray, Father, that because we're striving to glorify you, that you would come with us, that you would meet with us, that you would go before us, that you would travel in our presence, Father, that you would change us as an assembly and as people, that the glory of God would be seen on our faces more this year than, they, than it has ever been seen in the past. That lives would be transformed and changed, that you would open our hearts to a world around, that you would work and move and open doors of opportunity to change the world for your glory. We must have you. And we want nothing in your place. If there are any idols that we are putting there, I ask that you bring them down. And I ask God that we would put you alone at the center of our worship and praise. Come with us. Bless us uniquely. Travel among us, Father. In the right sense of the word, we pray that your presence would be with us. We thank you that it is in one very significant respect that through faith in Jesus Christ we have the indwelling Spirit of God and can walk in fellowship with you. But Father, please come close. Come close to Eden Baptist Church and to her people. And draw close, I pray, to your people throughout the world. We think of the churches that are around us here and throughout this globe that are seeking to honor your name, come to us, meet with us, revive our spirits, and do a unique work that we may see your glory. We pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.